Now, here's your host of Sound Off, Brad Bennett. Well, yeah, we're we're back with our number two, but this is uh, this is not my segment. This is Peter Wood's segment. Don't don't we have any music for him, Kenny? Don't we have that that? Uh, yeah, yes, but we save that for the first and second break. Oh, we do. Okay. Yeah. Well, th- then let me, without further ado, introduce you to the host of Let the Sun Us Fly, Peter Wood, a logger extraordinaire for many, 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 many years here in the Northland. And as my wife has told me many, many times, the best eye candy in the woods. <laughs> well, tell her thank you. I'll send the check for all that nice compliments. <laughs> Well, it's always nice to have at least one person a fan out there a little bit, you know. There's exactly. A, it sure is nice. Exactly. Tell Kathy, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will do that. But uh, so, uh, so introduce your guest today. This, this yep. sounds like it's going to be a good time. Yes, we're very fortunate to have an individual, a reporter. This is kind of different. Where we're going to be interviewing of somebody that interviews all the time. Dave Abbott hails from Alabama. Uh, I've met Dave a few years ago, and uh, he came up to me and introduced himself, and we've been talking ever since, you know, on and off, on and off, but it's been just a treat to know Dave. He re- he he works for uh, Hanton, I'm going to say it wrong, but Hanton Brown Publications, owned by one individual, and they have, I think, well, Dave can do a better job than me about different magazines, and they cover the timber industry, just pretty much the timber industry, lots of stories, lots of interviews. And Dave, it has been a pleasure to get to know you. And uh, did I say that right? Uh, ha- I think I did. No, it's uh, Hatton Brown, Hatton Brown Publishers. Oh. Uh, the the guy who originally founded it 70 years ago, I think, was named David Hatton, actually, H-A-T-T-O-N. And Brown was the name of the uh, printer service that he used at the time. So it became Hatton Brown Publishers. Wow. They've been doing the timber industry the whole time? Yeah, that, of course, I wasn't around. My my dad was barely around when they started it, but uh, they uh, they started out doing um, pulpwood mills, I think, and that sort of thing, uh, trade journals, and then they gradually evolved into uh, other related fields, which eventually turned into the logging magazines and the sawmill magazines and so forth that we do today. Wow. Back then, you go back that far, that was in the 50s, then, I think, or maybe late yes. 40s? And uh, I think it might have been the very late 40s, yeah. That would have been a lot of slower traveling that if you could even get to some of these places, you know, from that kind of travel. And of course, that's before logging was really mechanized with purpose-built machines. As you know, back in the day, they used uh, horses and mules and, and, and as well as bulldozers and crawler tractors and things that really weren't intended for that purpose. And then in the 60s, they began to evolve more into true logging equipment but when we start when the company started it was much more rudimentary you know yes yes i remember a lot of the machines no they didn't even have uh rope protection all uh, you know cab protection over the top it was just mm-hmm. bare open seat the cats tractors farm tractors pulling drays mm-hmm. mules oh my you look back and think no wonder should have been more people killed at the regular basis with the stuff that we did back then well i wasn't around in that time but i did come around mm-hmm. so but, <laughs> Um, Dave, uh, you want to tell folks a little bit about your family history? It's really interesting about your grandpa and your dad, and and, uh, then we'll start getting into what you do more now. Okay, sure. Uh, And by the way, i got to agree. I've I've told Peter this before, but he's sort of the Fabio. Remember Fabio of the... uh, He is. He is. The book guy with the hair and everything. He he always sort of reminds me of the timber Fabio, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, my uh, my, my I, wife. I, I have uh, no hair, so. <laughs> David, my yeah. wife, the first time she ever met him, she said, he should be on the cover of women's romance novels. <laughs> We, Peter, we've got to get you on the cover of Timber Harvesting. You need to talk to Dan Shell about that, and the, the, we'll be having to make extra printings. The wives put it up in calendars and things. You know? I go to lying yeah, convention. You know, people are going to be looking at me like, you son of a gun. <laughs> well, like I said, I have no hair, so I'm very, very jealous. I, I used to have hair like yours when I was young, but it went away a long time ago. So, <laughs> Well, you guys are too uh, kind, but uh, uh, i got to protect myself here. I might have trouble before I even get home. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah, thank you, Dave. But uh, yeah. on, on your family here, it's really interesting about your grandpa. I wanted to start with mm-hmm. him a little bit, and then your dad a little bit, and how he worked yeah. for our businesses. Yeah. So my my granddad, we, Peter and I talked about this uh, not too long ago. My granddad was John Floyd Abbott from uh, Cabot, Arkansas. He lived in other towns, but around Cabot, Arkansas, uh, Lone Oak, Arkansas, that area. And he, uh, there was a big age gap between the generations. So my, you know, I was born in 1978. My grandfather was born in 1904. So were he alive, he'd be 120 this year. Um, He got an infection in his leg, I think when he was about 12 years old, and had his leg amputated uh, at 12 years old. He was already an orphan. I think both of his parents were already gone at that time. And uh, he actually bad funny but sad story in the hospital after he had his leg amputated he broke his other leg racing another kid in their wheelchairs holy cow yeah wow uh, he uh but he the the point is he never let this stop him he had this kind of hard scrabble this is the early 20th century rural arkansas uh he's lost a leg lost both of his parents and the man never let that slow him down you know, he he ran a farm. He was a cattle farmer. He built uh, the house that my dad grew up in, a, a rock house that stood until the mid-90s. Um, he was a local businessman and politician. He was a barber. You know, he did this all on a wooden prosthetic leg, you know, rode horses. Uh, there There is now at the, in that area where my dad grew up on their property that was their farm, the lake, lake pond that he built, I believe there's now a, a medical center. And sort of a housing neighborhood built around that lake. I think it should be called Abbott Lake, but I don't think it is. It really should be named after us. But anyway, he built that himself, you know. Wow. So he never let that stop him. Um, and I use that story to shame my kids anytime they don't want to do something because they have a headache or something. You know? <laughs> my word, that's incredible. Listen, I just almost get tear. I just listened to the story about your grandpa, what, what he went through. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. He he died in, I think, 1953, so my 50, 53, I believe. My dad was 10 years old at the time, and uh, so my dad went to baseball practice. His dad dropped him off. Um, the story I've been told is, you know, somebody else picked him up after practice and told him his dad had died, you know. Um, so, again, had kind of a rough start, but he came up, worked for Riggs Tractor in Arkansas in the 60s in Little Rock, uh, which is a Caterpillar dealer. And that was probably his first exposure to the timber industry because one of the things that they sold was crawler tractors. They weren't specializing for loggers, but they had, again, there wasn't purpose-built logging equipment as much, but they were selling to logging customers these other machines. And um, 
he talks about that his employers and his supervisors talked about being concerned at the time as John Deere and some others were beginning to develop rubber-tired skidders and things of that nature. They were concerned they would lose some of their logger customer base. Right. And a few years later, after he gained some experience in hands-on things that I'm not very good at, that he's very skilled at, uh, with diesel mechanics and so forth, he got an opportunity. His sister moved to Montgomery, Alabama for a job with her for her husband. They happened to move next door to a man named Kit Avery, and people, older people from the South in the logging industry will know that name. He was a very famous, uh, successful salesman for Timberjack at the time. Um, which was a big logging equipment company. And in 1970, I believe, uh, she told her neighbor, Kid Avery, about her brother, my dad, Bill Abbott. And uh, they met in Memphis, and Kid Avery hired him to come work at the Timberjack store in Montgomery, Alabama. So that's how my family came here from Arkansas. And after about 10 years as a shop supervisor, the long story here, but anyway, he the short end of it is that he uh, – decided to go into business for himself as a logger. So he started Abbott Logging Company. And then I grew up around logging with him and then sort of worked on the on the shop on the weekends, welding and, and cleaning out belly pans and greasing. And then in the summers when I was old enough, running a chainsaw and that sort of thing, you know. Wow. So you grew up in the timber industry full-heartedly pretty much just like a normal family would that's in the timber industry. It's a family business, yeah. It was, it was uh, you know, he, he was at it for about 25 years. So. Wow. So with all that under your belt, you have quite a bit of understanding from the, the, the stump side of life, I call it, versus what you're doing today. So how you look at it as a perspective and that, but uh, um, could you say, could you tell the folks out there a little bit here before our first break about what, how you got into what you're doing today? Okay, sure. Um, so I, I worked, like I said, in the summers and winter breaks and things like that, but I was never really a full-time, you know, on-the-crew kind of guy. I helped out on the side and, and, and for a few months in the summer. And I went on to college. I was sort of academically inclined. I made good grades, so we thought I needed to go to college. And got out of college and did not have a great, easy time finding a job. So I was just very fortunate that I happened to uh, – I, I grew up reading Southern Logging Times, which is one of the Hatton Brown publications, as most people that are in the timber industry in the South have read over the years. And I happened to hear from my ex-wife's mother who worked there at the time that they were hiring for a writer. And I simply said, well, and by this time, my dad's logging business had kind of gone under anyway. So there was really no opportunity there. And I said, well, I can write. I did a lot of writing in college and I understand the timber industry. So why don't I go apply for this job? And I did. And that was 19 years ago and I'm still there. So Wow, quite the story, eh, Brad? About how this all comes about. <laughs> yeah, that full cycle. I was going to ask the same thing: how you end up from, you know, greasing equipment and doing all that to ended up writing and publishing. But that kind of explains it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the job market was kind of tight, and my dad simply by that point, the the work had kind of dried up in our area. He didn't have a lot of work to do. Um, he was still sort of contracting his. He had a little three wheeler Franklin. Feller Buncher, did you all ever see those up there in Minnesota? A little three-wheel Franklin? No, but I know what they are, but no. There, yeah. There's one here spotted now and then, but no, they don't yeah. exist really up here. No. Yeah, yeah. He, he he was contracting that out to some other loggers, but he had basically folded up shop and was about ready to retire by the time I was in my early 20s. Because, again, there's a pretty big age gap. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so it was just a matter of finding an opportunity, but I was lucky to be able to get into it because it's not a real big company and they just happened to be hiring right at the time that I needed a job, you know? Wow. Uh, that's, that's pretty, pretty great. Um, imagine, uh, you got some great stories as imagine, uh, we're going to be on a break here pretty quick, but, um, could you think of what anybody that really sticks out or, or went to job sites that stick out that you think mm-hmm. about that really like, wow, where'd I go? How would I get into this place? You know, because <laughs> with all your reporting, you're traveling all the time, you know, and you're going different places and that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there's several that could come to mind. The first one that that I that came to mind, you and I talked about the other day. Uh, if if I don't, if it's okay for me to make fun of myself a little bit, uh, was in Montana just a few years ago. We travel all over the country, and then sometimes to other countries to visit logging job sites and sawmills and other things. And you know, I'm from Alabama. Most of the loggers that I go see are in the south. I mean, I do venture out, but it's mostly in pine plantations, swampland, flat ground. So I get to Montana, and this logger says, you know, come up and see me, and he's logging on the top of this mountain. And it's a winding, narrow gravel road around the mountain. I guess if you grew up with that, that wouldn't sound intimidating. But for me, coming from where I come from, trying to go around this road uh, was was a little bit frightening because it was it felt like it barely had room you know for me to pass and then I get about halfway up he's literally at a thirty minute drive to the top of the mountain I meet his log truck coming down and there's no room to pass and I don't really I'm not at all comfortable with driving in these conditions so I have to put it in reverse and try my best to back up in reverse around this winding road, constantly feeling like I'm about to go over the edge and roll down the side of this mountain. And when I finally get to a spot after seemed like forever to sort of move over and let this truck pass, I sort of roll down my window to try to apologize. I'm thinking, you know, we're both going to laugh about it. And he chews me out and shames me. You know, you, you know, any man should feel ashamed of himself that he can't. And I was like, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm just not, you know, I've never had to do that before. Uh, and I, I felt really bad about it for the rest of the day. But, uh, you know, it was just that's not something I'm accustomed to driving in. So that one was one where I felt like I was really out of my element there, you know. <laughs> Folks got to be thinking about this, but there's no guardrails. It's really steep. You can right. go down no. a hill a good yeah. quarter mile down before you sit a plateau or trees or something and, you didn't yeah. need some guy getting upset about it. You did the best you could, but to visualize uh, Keystone cops backing down a hill with a vehicle, you know, because you're going in such a hurry. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Peter, you know, we, we uh, Peter, as you know, limited time. As as you know, we have to take our first break. We are commercial radio, so we got a we got a time frame we got to stay with here. But uh, yeah, think about what you want to talk about next, Peter. And uh, we're going to take our first break here. Uh, where you're listening to "Let the Sawdust Fly" with Peter Woods and his uh, guest Dave Abbott from down south, uh, writes for uh, publications down there. And we'll be right back. Giant redwood, lush. The fur, the mighty Scots pine, the smell of fresh-cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing. 
I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the laboratory. That's my favorite line. <laughs> I love that. And he goes to the laboratory out in the woods. David, I, th- this is Brad Bennett. I got to ask you a question. We lived down in uh, we lived down in Florida for probably ten years. I noticed that most of the logging in the southern states uh, they haul these big long are are they um, what are they spruce trees or something that they cut mainly down there? Well, uh, there's a lot of pine and just mixed hardwoods, red oak, uh, and just various different hardwoods. Yeah, m- mostly pine, really. Uh, depending okay. on where that, that varies from region to region, though. That kind of wood is used differently than some of the wood up here, I would assume, Peter, right? A lot of loblolly pine down there at plantations. Mm-hmm. We have our red pine, mm-hmm. Norway pine up here that uh, is prom- predominantly planted if it's planted, but a lot of natural regrowth. Uh, difference it depends on the climate and the, the moisture and uh, mm-hmm. the what is natural to those areas. And Dave covers a tremendous amount of area there. He covers most of the southeast. And I was just wondering, Dave, I was thinking here between break, um, what... Have you ever a unique logger or logging family that sticks out to you that you've done interviews with that you'd like to talk about a little bit? Because it, there's got to be, you do that many interviews, folks, it's it's all over and over and over again. Sometimes some people just stick out that it's quite unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's a few. Uh, one that sticks out to me uh, is a guy by the name of Hardy Rhodes out of uh, Arkansas. I think it's Monticello is where he lives, Arkansas. And uh, he just he just struck me something about him, you know, DK Knight, who started Southern Logging Times, who was my sort of mentor, and he he was there for fifty years. He said that when he started, his leader, Mister Hatton, told him that you know, hey, we talk about the industry, we talk about the equipment, but it's all about the people, you know, tell the people's story. And so I've always tried to get that sort of human interest side of it. And Hardy Rhodes just struck me as a guy who was real salt of the earth, down to earth, family oriented. He had a great crew with his, uh, you know, his, like his family members working with him. He brought me over to his house and fed me steak. You know, and we sat around and talked. Um, he was just, he was such a great guy and he was so professional and so on top of everything. Uh, and then you've got these guys uh, like Chad Nimmer in Georgia and uh, uh, Jack McFarland in Louisiana who are out there working in the woods um, um, and Richard Schwab in Florida would be another example of this, Peter, mm-hmm. yep. who then take the time to get involved politically, either in the industry through the various associations like the American Loggers Council, uh, or directly, like in Jack McFarlane and Chad Nimmer's case, running for and winning political office. And there's a guy in uh, Maine also who's done the same thing, who uh, Troy Jackson, I think was his name, who are loggers who then take the step to serve in, in public office in their state or in their local area uh, to try to help influence legislation that's beneficial to loggers. And those guys really stand out in my mind because, you know, loggers are busy guys, as you know. You guys work hard. My dad, if I saw my dad growing up, it was to go to work with him. He didn't have time for family vacations. He didn't have time to go fishing a whole lot. He never missed a football game I was in. But other than that, you know, he was either working in the woods or in the shop. It's a busy, busy thing to spend your life on. And so when these guys take the time out of that to try to also go help the industry beyond their own business, I think that's really impressive, you know. It does. Those are a few that have stood out to me. 
It does take a lot, a lot of effort, folks. He's right on. You, you, there's, you're, you're so busy because the margins are so tight. Mm-hmm. You're constantly working, constantly trying. And does does uh, Dave? Does it vary from area to area? Is it pretty much your common thread when you look when you do your interviews that it's pretty much that way everywhere? Because the folks you mentioned, I've met some, and mm-hmm. they have their business to take care of, and they work a lot. And then when you do these meetings or go to Washington or your cast, pick any state capital, you're on your own dime. You're on your own time mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And that's, you know, if, if you don't have somebody that's helping to run your crew for you, uh, then maybe it's a brother, uh, your, your dad in some cases, I mean, whatever you might have, or just a trusted employee, you could be losing production. You know, th- those bills keep coming whether you're out there making money or not. And anytime you're not hauling wood, you're losing money, you know. Very much so, yes. Yeah. The loads go or they don't go. That's make or break. And that's why you're always worried about the conditions, the weather, everything, markets, mm-hmm. what people are doing, things that are happening across the country can affect you greatly. And, and um, it can affect you right away. I, Listen, I Dave, have... and, uh, Dave and Pete, we've got to take our CBS News okay. break. But when we come back from this, uh, you know, it was interesting to hear you talk about how some of the loggers get involved in politics and local issues. Some of that, I would assume, is because there are, you know, it's a good way to keep your eye on what changes are coming. And some of them that you don't want to see happen, maybe you can address that as well. But let's talk about uh, the changes that you've seen in uh, politics and how maybe even some of the environmental controls have changed logging over the years as well when we come back after CBS News. That's a little bit of a woodchopper ball there, but before we get back to our uh, to our uh, host Pete Woods and his guest Dave Abbott, I do want to talk to our friend Justin from AirServe who is on the line with us. Uh, Justin, with warm days like this, it sometimes makes you makes you think that wow, we're gonna we're gonna just have warm days. We don't need a, our furnace running uh, really good anymore. But you would be badly mistaken if you thought that, wouldn't yeah. you? Yes, indeed, Brad. You and I are way too smart to fall for that trick. <laughs> Days like this, you 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 kind of take your heating system for granted, and you really shouldn't. Yeah, and you know, all this week, Brad, I've been talking to people that have outrageous electrical bills, and these electrical bills are associated with electric baseboards, electric boilers that are running an in-floor heating application, and other sources of electricity that are being used in the home that are not very efficient. So when we think about the electrical side of a ductless mini split, we're dealing with inverter heat. When we talk about electric baseboards, electric boilers, we're talking about electric resistance heat. And electric resistance heat is just not a very economically uh, prudent way of spending money on electricity. The inverter heat that we get off of a ductless mini split, Brad, that unit is 300 percent efficient. We get three times as much energy out of the system. In heating and cooling BTUs is what we put into the system for electricity, and that's precisely why the utility companies and the federal government are incentivizing these extra low-temp ductless mini-splits that do heating and cooling both, and they're incentivizing those with some pretty lucrative tax credits and rebates as well. That's understandable. The the government looks at it as a way of uh, not putting out too much fossil fuels. Uh, You're saving uh, areas there. 
And so there's reason to incentivize you. But, boy, when you talk about that uh, ductless mini-split, that, that's a huge conversion of savings, isn't it? It's, it's massive. And so this is a little wake-up call for some of your listeners out there. You know, sometimes people have gotten used to the cost that they pay for electric heat. And so they're used to these 800 900 maybe even $1,000 a month for an electrical bill. And they've just gotten used to it, and they don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Well, Brad, let me tell you something. If your electrical bill is $1,000 a month, one of two things is true. You either have an 8,000-square-foot house, or you need to have Justin over to talk about an alternative way to heat your house. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and probably the second option is going to be the best option for you. And when you're going to do that, uh, Justin, how do we get a hold of you? Is there a, do we just yell out the window, hey, day, hey, um, hey uh, Justin from AirServe, come on over to the house? Or, or is there a phone number we can dial? Well, you can yell out that front window. I might hear you. I might not. But the telephone gets answered every single day, 24 hours a day. And that telephone number is 218-879-SERVE, S-E-R-V. And our great website that we have available 24-7, airserve.com, A-I-R-E-S-E-R-V.com. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate it. Peter? Uh, carry yep. on with Dave. We were talking about yep. uh, different different options around the country. Yep, Continue yep. on. Yeah, Brad, you had a question before we went on break there about uh, how have uh, regulations in that, how has it hurt logging or affected logging in the timber industry? Right. Well, some of the regulations have actually helped. And Like years ago, if you went back to the 60s and 70s, there would be trash left behind job sites. So it was everybody, a lot of people did that. You know, it would be cables or parts or something like that. Today you really don't find that anymore. I mean, if it is, you're you're look you're it's clamped down pretty quick. So that that has really cleaned up a lot, a lot, lot. And now you don't see that anymore. Oil jugs left or something like that. No, it pretty much doesn't exist anymore. But uh, some of the things it gets a little bit too far where they're trying to regulate everything through the exhaust pipe, so to speak, and that gets very more expensive. And Dave, Dave, have you seen a change on that stuff yourself from what I'm trying to go with? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the first memory that I had of reading Southern Logging Times and Timber Harvesting, our other uh, national magazine, when I was a kid was in the late 80s, early 90s. Remember the Spotted Owl yep. situation that was going on at that time? And, that, you know, the, our magazines report. Some of the guys that I work with now were young reporters at that time. Dan Shell, uh, who I hope you can interview as well sometime, maybe because he's been around a lot longer than me. Yep. He was writing about that at that time. And he, he, he actually lived on the West Coast for us. You know, there were there were whole communities up and down the west coast that were timber towns where families were supported by logging and by sawmilling and when they shut all that down now we're a generation past that and those communities have in many places been sort of decimated as i understand it it's just no jobs they lost all the jobs you know um but at the same time uh as you pointed out some regulations uh, with safety and some other things have actually probably helped the industry and I think that also plays back to loggers getting involved in the process and speaking up and uh, uh, standing up for their own interests and being a part of the conversation because there are concerns with pollution and so forth. And the, what, I, what I think is so interesting is that loggers are sort of misunderstood in many ways in the wider culture. Loggers are not anti-environment. Loggers are the people that want the forest to keep growing. Their livelihood depends on that. They, they're family businesses that in many cases want to pass that down to the next generation, the next generation after that. They don't want to cut down all the trees. They want to replant them. It's the people that want to cut the trees down to build bigger cities 
that are really the enemy of that, I would argue. Loggers, for the most part, want it to be a renewable resource. They want to help be a part of managing that resource in a sustainable and a responsible way. So I feel like loggers are misunderstood. That's why it's important for them to get involved and have their voices heard as part of that conversation. Amen to that. Very, very much so because we don't we want to we want to have the forest close to our places because the farther out you get, the more expensive it gets to run an operation. And so mm-hmm. what, what you're saying there, Dave, yeah, very, very much so. We want to we, we want to we wanna have the forest all the time and we want to keep it going all the time. And um, have, 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 have you ever been in foreign countries where you see logging mm-hmm. a different way? Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've been in Europe several times. We've talked about visiting South America, Australia. You know, Tiger Cat has tried to have us come out there a few times for different things. Um, Parts of Asia, and we've had some of our salespeople go to those things. But I've only spent time in Europe uh, five or six times, I think, mostly in Scandinavian countries, a little bit in uh, once in Romania, um, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, but mostly in Sweden and Finland, and, and um, the main difference really is, 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 is not really a difference from where you're at. It's a difference from where I'm at is that uh, people are, are relying much more on those cut-to-length machines, Ponzi's and so mm-hmm. forth. And, uh, you know, there's a big – I guess it's the world's biggest logging equipment fair. It takes place in uh, Jönköping, Sweden, every four years. It's called Elmia. I've been there twice. I would have gone the last one, but the COVID sort of knocked all that out the last time. So I'll hopefully go to the next one. Uh, and it is fantastic because when you go to a logging equipment show in America, in the States, you these days there's been a lot of consolidation. So there aren't as many equipment manufacturers as there were 25 or 30 years ago. When you go over there, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of different manufacturers from, from various cut-to-length operations companies we've never heard of here. Lots of cutting-edge technology that they're using with, um, um, uh, what do you call it, the little goggles where you can see to control your machine from remote, you know, remote control, basically, logging, like VR-type, video game-type controls. Uh, Tethered logging, I saw more of that over there, and we're starting to see more of it over here. Um, where they're going down hillsides on a, on a cable, basically. Yep, yep. tether logging. Um, so yep. you start to see a lot of those sort of more advanced things take place there first before they come over here in many cases. From from what you've... Uh, seems to me when I listen to different people from different parts of the country and world, mm-hmm. it seems like Germany sticks out a little bit more than other places. Do you see the same thing, or is it just my only imagination on that? You know, for technology advancements, how they come up with thoughts and build things. What do you think on that? I, I just think that it's it's the Germans and the Scandinavians uh, from going back to Timberjack and John Deere to, you know, Husqvarna, Chainsaws, and a lot of those companies, and Ponzi, are based over there. And that's just where a lot of the engineering and the trial and error takes place as they, you know, the research and development. And, and it's, it's just a different setup. The logging here um, sometimes gets looked down on, and it doesn't seem to be the case as much there. They actually go to school for it, and it's sort of a respected career more than, unfortunately, in some cases, people don't see it that way here. So I think they... Peter, they just... uh, yep. Peter I know, uh, I, I hate to do this, but we have come to the end of the show again. Oh. We always end up too short. We could probably go on for another hour like this. But well. uh, David, David Abbott, I want to thank you for joining Peter today. It was very interesting conversation. And uh, Peter, I hope maybe you'll have me. David back on again at some point. Oh, yeah, we got to take our... 
Yeah, we got to take our last break here of our of the hour, and then we'll come back and wrap up our number two. We've been listening to "Let the Sawdust Fly" with uh, Pete Woods and his guest Dave Abbott. We'll be back. 